Welcome to Health Creators, where we discuss new creations in healthcare and building the future of health innovation. This is Liv. I'm a health tech founder in the clinical trial space, and I'm joined here today by Steve Roast, founder and CEO of PocDoc, enabling early at-home detection of heart disease, stroke, and other life-threatening conditions. So, Steve, did this start because of the pandemic? or No, this was before. So there's always been a huge problem with cardiovascular disease. Yeah. Um, and other things which are called pre preventable diseases. So things that like type 2 diabetes or um, cardiovascular disease, chronic kidney disease, you know, general ill health that can be prevented. And one of the sort of our theses was that one of the things that's preventing people taking more control over their health is access to testing. So yeah. right now, you know, 99.9% .9 of all tests go through the pathology lab system, you know, which is slow, requires a really high sample volume, is expensive, and it just doesn't really align with the way that people are living their lives. It doesn't even align with the direction of travel for the general healthcare system, mm. which is more digital, more personal. So that's why we built PocDoc, which is the world's first smartphone-based blood test. So it's smartphone-based. Mm -hmm. Yeah, app-based. App-based. So, yeah. so you order PocDoc and you get basically a test, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then it links to an app on your phone, basically. Yeah, so it's a lateral flow test, and mm. um, well, it's a combination of lateral flow technology that we've innovated on to be able to provide a quantifiable reaction. So normally lateral flow is very much a yes-no yeah. platform. So we've innovated on that, and we've combined it with groundbreaking image analysis that sits in our diagnostic cloud, that from us, an image taken with the smartphone camera within the PocDoc app, we can yeah. isolate the reaction, we can isolate all the pixels, and we can quantify that in terms of the actual concentration level for that particular analyte, all within a, a matter of seconds. Um, and the interesting thing is because you're able to give a quantified reaction, qu quantitative uh, result, yeah. it opens up a huge amount of downstream value. So for example, test and treat, follow-on testing, monitoring, um, all of those things that are really, really valuable when you're trying to kind of help someone, encourage them to change their behavior and live a healthier life. So it's not just a yes, no reaction, the yes, I have COVID, no, I don't, it actually opens up that downstream ecosystem, which is what we find very exciting. So, um Whereas before, you know, the lateral flows we're used to taking are this kind of yes, no. What yeah. you're building is basically, hey, um, you do this lateral flow. Do I have to prick my finger? Yeah, so it's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's a finger prick, but just mm -hmm. as a kind of point of comparison, yeah. the at-home sample tests that you get, yeah. like, you know, Thriver and things like that, that's 500 microliters to fill up that pot. We need 20 microliters. Okay, so, so it's kind it's of like an order less. of magnitude smaller, yeah. yeah. It's significantly smaller, so far more usable, far more practical. Um, for people from any age and kind of any any background. So yes, um, you prick your finger, download the app, use the app to answer questions that for, at the moment is geared around the cardiovascular disease pathway so that we can combine the results, that, the, the, the answers that you give us with the results from your biological test and we can provide it back as a sort of risk assessed certificate. And I think we've talked about this before, but why is cardiovascular disease important to you? So, well, it, it's important. It should be important for all of us because it's the single yeah. biggest killer. Um, for me personally, my, my dad had a huge stroke when he was 43 mm. um, that was down due in large part to undiagnosed cardiovascular disease. Yeah. So at the time, access to testing was even worse than it is today. General awareness of the situation around cardiovascular disease was even worse than it was today. So I know that the, the devastating impact that, that undiagnosed cardiovascular disease can have um, because it, it had a pretty devastating impact on my family. So I think if there's any way in which we can we can play our part in, in, in that, I mean, our sort of mission is really geared around access, yeah. access to testing. That's that's sort of our philosophy. Um, you know, and we, we, we know that it will make a big impact.
And you feel like this access to testing would have changed your dad's life? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that ultimately he didn't know that he had a ticking time bomb. He knew that Mm -hmm. he wasn't very healthy, but he didn't know the exact situation. He didn't know that he was, for example, in the red slash purple banding, you know, for cholesterol levels. You know, he didn't know because he hadn't had tests done and it just wasn't something that was done regularly or or, or was sort of accessible, really, um, you know, at that time. And so I feel like if he'd have had regular access to testing, he would have had a better idea of his very specific risk factors. And that would have meant that he was would have been more likely to make some mm. lifestyle changes in advance of uh, the cardiac event that he had. And is, is part of that because you you have this company and your co-founders, one of them is your wife. She right? is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and is, is part of this like, hey, I want to build something where now. Um, I would never have to to create that same situation with my family. Yeah, I think it's, I want to be proud of, I want to be able to point to something that we've Mm. done and and said that it makes a difference. I think that's really important, not just for us, but for lots of people, um, you know, in the last sort of five to 10 years, there's really been a huge upswing in terms of not not just creators and not just sort of entrepreneurs, but but people that want jobs that make a difference, you know, that, that, that like, Yes, you can go and be a developer at one of a hundred yeah. last-minute delivery companies. That's possible, and you'll get paid a really good salary, I'm sure. But it's not really going to make the world a better place, you know. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's why I love doing what we're doing. It's because it's actually making a difference. Like there's a real mission there that has real value, and and that's just within cardiovascular disease. But our technology has also been used more widely, for example, with Path, which is part of the Gates Foundation to help them screen for mm-hmm. polio in Pakistan and other rural areas in Tunisia where there is no access to pathology lab testing, whether when there is a polio outbreak, they need to deploy rapid tests very, very quickly. Um, but until it would, in, until PocTOC started to collaborate with them, they weren't able to digitize those results or transmit yeah. them back to the surveillance authorities in real time, which is what our diagnostic cloud does. So there's huge amounts of application of what we're doing across the world. And it's just, it, it's really inspiring to be part of, of all of these different different projects. When did you start seeing this kind of like turning point of like, all of these partnerships happening because I guess like in the beginning it's really like prying open yeah. the doors right yeah I think it was um, you know the pandemic had a big impact mm. I think pre-pandemic there wasn't th- th- there was definitely interest in what we were doing but it wasn't quite as acute it wasn't quite as like oh my goodness we need this now I think after the pandemic particularly in the UK cardiovascular disease is back on the agenda for the healthcare yeah. authorities and for the government um, they've recognized that it is the single biggest killer and largely speaking it's preventable so mm. if you can find people either in primary prevention or in secondary prevention and get them on statins or some other lipid lowering therapy it reduces the risk of them having a cardiac event a cardiac event dr- dramatically yeah. um, and, and statins are relatively cheap for the health system but the gating factor is a five marker lipid test so it's all well and good saying that you want to find the 7.6 million people that are undiagnosed with cardiovascular yeah. disease in the uk but you can't get them into existing phlebotomy services because those existing phlebotomy services are so constrained. So that's where those things have sort of conspired together to um, create a much clearer use case for what we're doing in a much more acute Mm. kind of timely manner. So so you can't get access to essentially testing unless you are at risk for something you don't really have. Well, yeah, so I think the issue is that the system itself is under so much strain across the Mm. board you know, across the board, bringing people in to test them for their lipid levels. When you've got, for example, many GP surgeries, um, they only have one morning of phlebotomy a week. 
So that means they have oh, one yeah. a phlebotomist working yeah. for like a half day and they have to schedule all of their, for everything, for, for any diagnostic test yeah. has to happen within that window, mm. right? And the tests need to be done by lunchtime because the samples need to be sent off and so forth. So this, a lot of the time that gets occupied with what's like highly acute blood tests. Got it. Not necessarily these more general preventative monitoring type tests. And so there isn't really a very easy way um, in the system to try and unblock that, right? Because if you're using, if you're sending samples to the pathology lab, you need to have a phlebotomist because it's a venous yeah. blood draw. Whereas actually we're saying, well, hold up a second, there's some blood tests that you can use for point, you can use point of care testing technology. Mm. And we've combined that point of care testing with effectively replicating the technology backbone of a lab, but in the cloud. So we can deliver it via an app, a point of care, but we've still replicated the technology backbone, the auditable, traceable, regulated, um, technology backbone in the lab that means that we can vertically integrate with healthcare authorities and, and healthcare providers so they get the best of both worlds really yeah because I guess it's like access to healthcare for everyone is free yeah if you're dying <laughs> yeah well yeah I mean it's the, the access is free as far as the NHS yeah. is concerned but yeah. it it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that you can get access mm. to what you need when you need it yeah so yeah you don't have to pay but I mean, the company, you know, my, my wife, she came up with the idea, original idea for the company because her father went to his GP and tried to get a cholesterol test. And the GP said, no, I'm too busy. You seem healthy enough. Yeah. And so, you know, no. Um, and that happens up and down the country all the time, you know. Yeah. And so there, there has to be a better way. And it's, we, we, we want to work within existing pathways, which is yeah. why we work with the NHS and healthcare providers. It's not, we're not trying to disrupt anything. We're just trying to say there's a better way to increase people's access. So the more people you test, the more people you'll find, the more people you can treat. Really yeah. simple. And, and do you feel like the pandemic has kind of created this testing culture now where people are used to testing right it's certainly yeah. more it's certainly been helpful i, I mean I, yeah. I it's it's hard to say that it wasn't there before but it's certainly been massively helpful mm. in terms of i actually think weirdly more the authorities because i think that there was a perception among the authorities that people would or would not behave a particular way that wasn't really based on any evidence so things yeah. like well people won't test themselves at home or people won't prick their finger or you know all this kind of stuff the year before the pandemic, there were 60 million venous blood draws done for lipid panels in the UK. Yeah. So I don't know if you've ever had a venous blood draw, but it's pretty uncomfortable. So, you know, it's the, like the, yeah, it's the one out of your arm and you have to take time like out of your day. Tube. Yeah, they, but often there's like three or four tubes that they fill oh, up. Really? So, yeah. like, how many of those people would prefer to have a finger prick? So the kind of mm -hmm. accepted wisdom at the time that we were hearing was like zero, which is insane. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. So I think after the pandemic, definitely attitudes have shifted. I think people have been way more aware of diagnostics as a value add to the system and not yeah. necessarily just a cost, right? Because it's sort of understanding, well, the diagnostic is often the, the starting point of the pathway. So if you can't get that done in a scalable, affordable manner, then you don't really get those people into those pathways. Um, yeah. So... Yeah. And I guess, I mean, we talked about this briefly yesterday, but the whole like Theranos thing with the finger prick, how have you tried to instill some trust in people? Sure. When you talk about like finger prick blood testing, I think the first thing that comes into people's mind will be, you know, Elizabeth yeah. Holmes. So. Yeah, I think, I mean, there are lots of different ways to extract blood from a finger prick you know mm. it's not just us i mean any of the at-home lab testing companies is the same yeah. thing except they need 500 microliters and we need 20 so that's mm. a big difference i think from the beginning the very first thing that well i think there's a few things i could talk about throughout all day but yeah. that 
she didn't really even try to do it properly. You know, <laughs> it was sort of like from the beginning, yeah. she was a 19 year old, she left university she, uh, undergrad, mm. she didn't even finish her undergrad, she didn't do a postgrad, she didn't do a PhD, she didn't do any of that kind of embed any of that scientific method and rigor mm. into her own personality. So I think that was a big, a big red flag. I think for our, from our perspective, obviously our founding team has over 60 years of, of experience yeah. across all of these different areas. And so the first thing we did after we founded the company was to embed what's called a quality management system, which yeah. is the bedrock of your regulatory framework mm. and is it effectively runs your entire company to, to allow you to demonstrate and to prove that you're making a quality, traceable, auditable, yeah. safe product. And that's how it should start. So the quality management system effectively dictates how you develop the product from day one. And, you know, that was really important to us to demonstrate that we were that we not, not just understood the regulatory framework, but that we'd embraced it because we actually yeah. felt like it's a competitive strength. So like what she did, um, what Elizabeth Home did was to sort of take the mm. starting position, which was that regulation didn't apply to her or to mm -hmm. their company and to do everything within her power to circumvent it. Whereas you know, from day one, we took the opposite approach, which has worked pretty well for us, I think. Got it. And talk me through year one, right? Because at this point you've had your first child yeah. um, and you're starting a company with your wife. Um, like how, how the hell did you manage yeah, that? I, I mean, yeah. I, I think it's definitely been, it's definitely yeah. been stressful. I mean, we've now got three yeah. children and I think that mm. The, the, what I always say to people is that working with your partner is yeah. amazing. When it's really good, it's amazing because you're completely on the same page, you're completely on the same mission. I think that it definitely, when we were starting the company, it came up quite a bit with investors, but not as much as we were, we were expecting. Mm. Um, I think probably because we were a little bit older, we were married, we, we had a child already. So I think they yeah. had a lot of that security that was already in place. Like it was quite a lot, of, it was quite a high barrier for us to kind of break up, if yeah. that makes sense. Whereas, I'm, you know, I would imagine that like, if it was sort of like, oh, I'm starting, I'm starting a business with my boyfriend, and you know, <laughs> the investors might be like a little bit, oh, okay, how's that gonna work out? Yeah. Um, so I, th I think the biggest challenge with working yeah. with your spouse is, or, or your partner is um, switching off, mm. right? Because particularly when you work from home in the pandemic and things like that, and it's, it's really, really hard to switch off. And I'm terrible at it. You know, I'm, I'm like the worst person. I, I can't really switch off very easily. And so um, we've had to kind of put some kind of, you know, guardrails and guidelines yeah. in place a little bit just so that we can switch off. But, it, you know, having been involved in, in different sort of ventures over the years, I can say with this one, with absolute clarity that we're both completely on the same mission and there's no mission yeah. kind of deviation or there's also no kind of weird shenanigans around, you know, which, you know, the founders kind of friction or anything like that, that like doesn't really happen. Because you were previously also, would you say Travago? Viagogo. Viagogo. Yeah, so was I was it one a of the. Startup when, when yeah, you... well, I was one of the first employees there. Yeah, I was sort of employee number ten or something. So, mm. saw that start started really a completely different sector. Yeah. Um, you know, total rocket ship. Um, you know, again, it was one of the. It, it was an amazing experience. I think that I've taken a lot from that into what we're doing now. Yeah. Um, but I'm way. I'm, I'm just so passionate about the mission that we have. Which is the yeah. same thing with, with, with all of the health tech creators that you're talking yeah. to, you know? Like, everyone has a mission, right? You have a mission. We all For do. Sure. Um, and it's amazing to be able to talk to people about the stories behind those things and why people have chosen those particular missions and those particular visions and things like that. And I think it's, it's, it's a very inspiring industry to work in, right? Because everyone generally is pretty smart, right? Mm. Because everyone's generally been through some type of extended technical 
or, or at least had a lot of exposure to scientific technical yeah. issues, you know, and whether or not they have had that background or whether they've been working with people that have, it just seems to raise the level of people's sort of ability and intellect in this and, and sort of drive and yeah. capability. And, and, um, and Viagogo, I guess it wasn't healthcare, so maybe people were on a broader spectrum of like their backgrounds and yeah. stuff. But like, what were your like key takeaways from that experience, and how are you bringing that into healthcare? Yeah, I think that's that's a good point. I think that one of the key things that it opened my eyes to mm. is how hard the startup journey is. Yeah. You know, and I think that that's one of the things that helped us in the beginning raising the money that we've raised and working with the investors that we've worked with is me being able to demonstrate that that, that i've been on that journey before you know and yeah. had, I, I had a first-hand experience of, of how tough it is and how difficult it can be um and also how hard you have to work you know like mm. it's if, if I, I see a lot of people who move out of maybe more established companies yeah. or larger companies or things like that and they don't quite get the level that you have to take it to sometimes yeah. as a startup to, to, to not just necessarily be successful, but just to continue to exist, yeah. you know, and to continue to kind of grow. Um, I think the other thing that, that, that I embedded is that when you're doing early stage stuff, even, even when you're not early stage and you're bigger, there's always going to be stuff that goes wrong. Yeah. You know, there's always going to be another problem. That's kind of the mm. point, particularly if you're doing something new, whereas I feel like a lot of people like to work in a way to avoid all problems or they mm. perceive problems to be negative instead of saying, well, problems are always going to happen. It's more around how you deal with them. Now, yeah. Like You obviously want to try and avoid problems and sort of put things in place so that you don't have problems. But when you're doing things for the first time, there are going to be issues and you're, you're bootstrapping it or whatever it happens yeah. to be. Um, and I think that being able to just sort of understand that those problems are going to happen, there's generally always a solution you know, if you have good people around you, you're going to figure it out and try and sort of project that level of calm. Whereas sometimes, particularly if you come from like a really big company, like you there's panic. always somebody else yeah. that can solve your problem for you, mm. right? Because you can go to HR, you can yeah. go to IT, you can like, you write a report and you pass it on to your manager. And also things don't really change that often that quickly. So stuff doesn't yeah. really kind of like go wrong in that sense, you know, because yeah. stuff's so embedded and it's all these, big, like if you're in like a multi-billion dollar pharma company, it's pretty hard to make something like go wrong on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm always confused about like, obviously people are doing stuff, but like in a startup context, if you brought someone from like one of these big companies, it's always like, what? Yeah. What do you? What have do? you done? Yeah, like, like what, what do? Can, yeah. What can you do? Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Because it's really outside, hard. outside of track record, right? Like, yeah. What actually can you produce? What can you build? Yeah, and what what yeah. have you built? And a lot a lot of the yeah. time. I think there are people that like big companies and thrive in big companies and there are people that are more comfortable mm. in entrepreneurial environments and yeah. smaller companies and there's sort of like a group of people that can kind of like move between the two but very I think they're the rarest group mm. I think it generally you're either more of a big company person or more of a smaller company person because yeah. like yeah like in, the, in big companies I mean and we saw this in, in Vigogo and, and less so in our in our in Pockdog but definitely in Vigogo yeah. where we had anyone joining from a larger more corporate environment just didn't cut it at Viagogo yeah just like yeah. 10 out of 10 times pretty much really? they just, yeah they just couldn't handle it they just couldn't and like how long would they survive oh, a few months a few months I mean depends, it depends how much yeah. visibility there was over their role and what they were doing mm -hmm. and their KPIs but fundamentally they generally just 
didn't understand or appreciate the pace yeah. that we wanted to work at and the quality and the level of personal yeah. responsibility of delivery that was there. You know, there was a lot of like, oh, well, you know, that's not my fault because X, Y, and Z mm. and the thing. And it's, you know, as opposed to being like, well, hold up a second, this is just my area. So I'm just going to own it and yeah. dominate and whatever happens is on me, you know, and just being able to sort of just just work at an, un an unbelievably hard because, level. Because via Google was a hustle, right? Like you yeah, were I mean, in it, the lobby of... of yeah, I mean, it was, yeah. it was, it, we were highly, highly disruptive, I think is yeah. probably the polite way to phrase it. You know, like we were really disruptive yeah. and in any single market that we went into, and we entered into about 70 during my time there, different geographic markets, mm. um, it was extremely disruptive, you know, and, and, and there were all the... Grit. Yeah, yeah, massively. And, and I think everyone that worked there during that time and still works there has that kind of quality, that grit and that determination. Mm. So, you know, credit to the company for helping me get, you know, the, the education that I got in that respect. Yeah. So. And, and um, do you think that, you know, one of the reasons you've kind of gotten so far now is learning that resilience through Viagogo? Yeah, I mean, I was already pretty resilient, but it was, um, <laughs> yeah. I, I would say that resilience in general is a really underrated mm. skill. Because it's also one of those skills that you can only track over longitudinal, right? Yeah. Right? Because it's not like yeah. you, you demonstrate resilience by doing something really difficult for mm. quite a long period of time. So it's not necessarily as obvious as like, oh my goodness, that person's really smart. Or, oh my goodness, that person has these yeah. different particular skills. It's like resilience of being able to like stick at it during tough times is something that you really only demonstrate by sticking at it during tough times. Yeah. But what I will say is that having some kind of like arc in your life of understand like the, the more experience you have the more context you have for whether things are like really good good satisfactory terrible or absolutely horrendous and and how often they kind of switch between the two right so like mm -hmm. if you're if you've got a much narrower range of experience it's much harder to understand well actually in the grand scheme of things yeah this isn't as bad as it could be but um yeah that you only get that with experience so but um, I mean, do you not feel like it's a bit like this in a startup where it's oh, like, yeah. hey, I feel great this morning. Yeah. Shit happens. Yeah. Ah, yeah. It's, you know? yeah. And, but yeah. I think that like, if, I'm sorry, I said this to Kieran. <laughs> so Kieran, Kieran didn't come from a startup background. So when yeah. we started the company, I remember a number of times I was like, something mm. would happen or go wrong or something. Yeah. And I was like. I just wouldn't be stressed about it. And she'd be really stressed. Yeah. I, and she's like, why aren't you more stressed? I'm like, because like. Stuff just, goes, stuff just goes wrong yeah. and like we're, we're doing stuff for the first time like yeah. no one's done this stuff before like yeah i get it mm. it would have been really great if we hadn't have run out of x someone should have ordered x like i get it like it's frustrating because yeah. now we can't do y thing because we don't have the x order in i get it like yeah. that's i totally understand doesn't change the fact we don't have it in and now we've ordered it and can't get do it. anything about yeah we've it. lost a week yeah. and that's really annoying yeah. but like we are where we we are where we are with it so yeah i think it's um it was kind of interesting. I mean, I think that working with scientists and stuff directly and trying to, you know, scientists that moving out of academia into the workplace, particularly a startup workplace, has yeah. been definitely a transition for a few of them, right? Because like, 
we're not a research project. No. You know, we, we have a very clear end yeah. goal. We have very clear targets. We've got big objectives. We've got big, big, big requirements. You know, and like we got to hit them. It's not like yeah, we're not we're not just doing things just to write paper. How do paper. you deal with that? Because it's like it's it's yeah. it's, it's tough, right? Because you, you don't want to like trample on people exactly, either. Exactly, but right? you bring people in from like research, right? Yeah, and you need their expertise, but like yeah. and then like they can spend. Months yeah. just researching stuff. Yeah, like, I think it's really hard. Yeah. I think that what we learned was that any single year of industry is really valuable. Mm. So like even if it's like a one year or a two years or a yeah. three years, like just having been in a regulated, so we're ISO 13485 regulated, yeah. which I don't know if you know what it is, but like it's a quality management system yeah. thing. That So having had somebody that's worked in that environment mm. for even a year, is a massive difference to someone that's just that hasn't it's huge really yeah and and the further they go on that has real real value because they're just they're more used to um you know uh, objectives that are around delivery yeah. on a particular task or a particular goal as opposed to the sort of slightly free form investigation mode mm. you know that continues to go on and it's like it's kind of as interesting to know why nine of ten things didn't work Instead of just saying, well, like one of the ten worked, so I don't care why the other nine didn't work, yeah. broadly speaking, because number one worked, so we're just going to go with number one, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so, it's just the outcome. Yeah, like we, yeah. we tested ten things, one worked, nine mm. didn't. We could spend weeks figuring out why the nine didn't, but like let's just try and sort of triage these things a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think like trying to help people. I think the other the other real benefit of, of my previous experience is really trying to help people focus on what's important. Mm. Like what will actually move the needle versus all the other stuff that people can get distracted by. Yeah. Like I think that that's a, particularly an early stage, particularly when you've got a lot going on mm. and you've got very, very lofty objectives. You know, I think that's, that's, a, that's a hard one. Yeah. I mean, so it's not your first rodeo, <laughs> <laughs> but do you feel like if you were to start the same company again that you'd get here like way faster? Uh, I think I would be surprised if people, if if anyone ever answered that question like no, right? if, like if you started the same company yeah, again, yeah. you would always well unless you decided to do things exactly the same way. Yeah. So someone, so one of our investors in our previous round asked this is sort mm. of a similar question. He was like, "What would you have done differently?" Mm. And I started to think about it. I sort of took some time to think about it. I was like, "I think that what we did." Which we could have, we could have impact, we could have done better. Yeah. Is this the supply chain piece in the R and D mm. phase? So in the R and D phase, I think that you know the idea that like an army marches on his stomach a little bit. Like you might have all your soldiers in the field, but if they don't have guns, bullets, beans, yeah. bandages, all that stuff is not going to work. A little mm. bit the same with R and D, right? You're trying to figure certain things out across a quite a quite a broad range mm. of complexities, and if you don't have the materials in order to be able to run the experiments, you can't run the experiments. You don't run the experiments, yeah. you can't get data. You don't get data, you can't make conclusions. Like So that yeah. we could have been more efficient in actually ensuring that we had all of the supply that we needed more in you advance. You had to move quick. You've got yeah. to move quick and also like you can't micromanage mm. people that much. And, and, and you know, also like, yeah, you, you hire grown-ups to, to, to do those things. You know, you don't yeah. want to be sort of having... To, but it's a question of organization and people moving quickly and also people not necessarily knowing 
where the R and D is going to move. Like it, that might be the right one. That might not be the right one. But like if you over order, you know, over order there, then maybe that's mm. not the right thing to do. So it w- it wasn't a disaster. It was more just that would be something that I would focus on next time around. Yeah, you mentioned higher grown ups. How do you do energy management, right? Because yeah. I feel like with like grown ups. Not that I'm not a grown-up. I'm a grown-up. Um, I think it maybe, depends how grown-up they are. Yeah, I, think. I feel like you, you get to a point where people are grown-up, grown-ups, and like yeah. the energy is just no, different, right? I agree. Yeah. I think that there's a real balance. But that's not to yeah. say, I mean, it depends on the individual, you know? Like, yeah. they're, they're, But I think there's a general trend, which is once people get past a certain point, mm. they're not maybe not so interested in really staying in the really? bunker for 15 hours a day. Yeah. But, like there's also an argument now which is like maybe it shouldn't be the case that everyone has to be in the bunker 15 hours a day you know i don't know but i do think that it it just depends on how motivated they are around the mission and also what kind of background so like i think if they've been in smaller entities before yeah they have in my experience more of an understanding about doing what Mm. needs to be done and not necessarily this reliance on oh okay well there's this big giant machine you know, and like, yeah. I'll kind of clock in, clock out, that type of thing. I mean, clocking in, clocking out just doesn't work for startups. No. Particularly not early stage. It just it just doesn't work. Because also what you get is like, at the early stage, there will be people that are not clocking in and clocking out. Yeah. Right? And then it creates this really uh, unfortunate, like, like divergence, mm. you know, and a kind of a culture issue really early on. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's tough. Interesting. I mean, I met a guy... Um, at Web Summit, actually, who, who's ex-McKinsey, and he was like, I only hire people between the ages of 28 and 32. It's pretty narrow. First 10 employees, right? He said, in any company you ever build, the first 10 people need to be between the ages of 28 and 32, because before that, they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. After that their priorities change yeah i mean i i mean yes i he's probably got some kind of a case i wouldn't say it's like completely exclusive because like particularly with things that are technical yeah. highly technical True. you know like the, the you, you know even a 31 year old or a 32 year old is not going to have as much experience there's not yeah. going to have enough experience sometimes but it is a really delicate balance yeah really, really delicate balance like so, do yeah. i want a 20-year-old building the rocket ship. Well, yeah, like, you can't, and also a 20-year-old won't be able to build, like, let's yeah. not go back to Theranos, right? She was 19, 20. Yeah. She couldn't do it. So, mm. you know, she went and talked to people that were 32, 35, 40, 45, and they were like, well, you can't do it that way, but if you do it this other way, and then she just ignored them, you know? So mm. I, um, I think it's a delicate balance. It depends on the type of business that you're running, you know? Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, people are going to have different priorities as they as they grow up, obviously. Um, yeah. But I don't necessarily know that it completely like tracks like, you know, there are, there's loads of like really motivated older people that, that I work with and have worked with. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, do you find that having kids now shifts your priorities? Like, can you really build like and focus on building when you have like this whole family thing going on? As I well? mean, I'm able to. I don't know if that's the same for everyone. I mean, I yeah. wouldn't be doing it if I couldn't. Yeah. I think that it, it um, it's more around you just have to be a lot more organized, mm. you know, and, and you obviously things have to give. So, like, for example, maybe when you're like 25, you might work as hard as you do when you've got kids. It's just that you're not out with the guys or the girls from the office mm. in the evening. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, you're like, well, I got to go home. I got to yeah. look after my, you know, so like. 
I think trying to sort of make a case that people with children can't run or build startups is probably not gonna, I don't know no. if that's gonna track, but it definitely, yeah. um, it's definitely like a challenge, but you know, it, it is, it just it is what it is. I've just noticed, deal with it. yeah, I've noticed that I, I feel like parents are better at like time management. You have to be. Right? You have to be. Yeah. You have to be. I also think that it does help you switch off because you're forced to switch off because mm. you have to deal with them. You know? <laughs> They're like frustrating individuals sometimes, yeah. you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, but look, any parent will tell you it's difficult, right? Your kid's sick. You've got to go get them. And, you know, that's 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 tough. And yeah. How do you deal with sleep? Um, you just get what you can. You Jeez. just get what you can. Yeah. So, like they, they wake you up and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like we got a, they're little people still. So little like, people. yeah, they're, they're yeah. small people. So I don't know. I mean, there's an element where it allows you, I mean, when, before we had our third, mm. um, I was like, look, if we go down this pathway, I'm basically just gonna like work or look after the family. And that's mm. kind of what's happened, which is fine. I'm fine with that choice. Yeah. Whereas, so the thing that goes is a lot of the social stuff yeah. you know because you're so focused on work when you're working and then yeah. you know the family when you're not which is fine I mean that's just the choice that, that I made I guess um who you spend time with changes over time yeah right? yeah 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 exactly um you know mm -hmm. and it's different like it, I, I wouldn't say that there's any period of my life that's particularly worse or particularly better it's just different yeah. you know I mean I love having the kids I love being a dad you know mm. it would it be easier if I wasn't running a startup and being a dad? Yeah, probably, right? But I yeah. might not be learning as much or developing as much. And I also think it's important. I want to be able for them to see that we did this, you yes. know, and, 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 and irrespective of how it shapes out and comes out, that mm. that's something that we can talk to them about, about that we did it and this is how it went. And it provides them with a bit more of a frame of reference about what's possible. Because like yes. I firmly believe yeah. is like the exposure that they get Mm. Will will kind of subconsciously or even consciously limit what they believe is possible for themselves. Mm. So like, if their range of exposure is from you know, mum worked at like for a while at Pfizer and yeah. all the way up to mum and dad did a startup and kind of like everything in between, yeah. it's pretty broad, right? And I, I would want them to feel like that, that there's nothing that's sort of off limits or off the table. And mm. um, so I, I think that that's important for me. Like a. Uh you can make anything happen. Yeah, like, like that's the, like, yeah. I think about the number of people that told us that we literally, when we started the company, you, it will not work. Like mm. it won't work, it won't happen and no one will buy it and no one cares and it's, no one's gonna put their finger and it's all impossible. Yeah. You know, we were one of those companies where people were like, that's just not gonna happen. And luckily we found a group of angels that believed in us and were willing to kind of invest off the back of a business plan and a bit of kind of scientific yeah. evidence. Um, you know, and we've come a long way since then. But I would want them, to know that you don't have to listen to people. In fact, sometimes yeah. you just have to believe in what you're doing yeah. and be passionate enough about it to push on. And then it's like, it's gonna be tough, you know? It's gonna be hard, but like, there's a lot of value that you get. And you write it. them the, I told you so press release. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of that. There. I mean, look, that's always nice to be able to do. I would, I would yeah. be careful about that though, because, you yeah, know, pride yeah, does go before course, a fall. So, but yeah. the, um, yeah, I think it's just, it, it's, um, it's yeah. important for me for them to be able to see that the world is full of possibilities. Yeah. So, you know, and I think that there's nothing harder than anyone can do than in work-wise. There's not, apart from maybe being a doctor or a nurse or something like that, but generally speaking, starting your own company yeah. is widely considered to be quite a hard thing to do, yeah. you know? So 
actually being able to show them that that's what we did, I think mm. is a good, it's a good, it's a good example to set them. And beyond your kids, um, what's the one impact you want to leave on the world with PopDoc? I want people to be able to test themselves at home for lipids and like mm. actually make a meaningful impact in terms of getting millions more people into treatment and saving millions of lives. And that is literally what we can do with PopDoc once we get it, once it sort of really scales up, not just in the UK, but, but mm. everywhere. Um, that's, that's the mission. Mm.